Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. Me and my friend Ariel Shafir, we always say that no one has ever really held a front door open for either one of us in our careers. And I don't even come through the back door. I come through like a chink in the wall. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to come back again and come back again. And you'll realize that I've always been here and you've needed me, you know? So that's what I feel like what's happening right now, which is why I feel like on every platform, things are, things are in a really good place right now. It's a, they're not always like that. But what's important for me you want to talk about this stuff is that I want people to see that there's been a lot of work and, and faith and taking chances and taking lots of risks to have any of this success that I have. None of it's been easy. And if people look at my career, even just about 10 years ago, they can see how different things were. That was Coleman Domingo. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Coleman Domingo cannot be categorized as one thing. He's a multi-hyphenate talent, an actor, a writer, director, a playwright. He's really done every kind of work in film, in television, and theater. You've probably seen him on Fear the Walking Dead as Victor Strand, or The Nick as Dr. Russell Daniels. He had a bit part on Horace and Pete. In film, he's been in Lincoln, 42, Newlyweeds, Lee Daniels, The Butler... Uh, the Birth of a Nation, he is incredible in Red Hook Summer. But 
Most recently, though, he's in two new films. The first is called Assassination Nation by director Sam Levinson. It's out September 21st. And then there's If Beale Street Could Talk, which is the latest film from director Barry Jenkins. Here's a bit from the trailer. When I was growing up, I was trying to make a connection between the life I saw and the life I lived. There are days when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. This is one of them. More than anything, Coleman is just a natural storyteller, whether it's through acting or writing or directing. He knows how to get from point A to point B in a way that's concise and intriguing, which uh, it lends itself to the podcast format. So throughout the episode, you're going to hear various songs interspersed, and uh, every track is from a play that Coleman wrote and was performed in New York. And if you'd like to read that play, uh, you should absolutely do so. It's called A Boy and His Soul. It's available on Amazon, Google Play, wherever you get your e-books. It's also, I'm sure, on paperback in various bookstores. It's completely worth your time, and I hope you uh, check that out. So, without further ado, here is Coleman Domingo. I want to start in what I believe is the beginning for you in West Philadelphia. Yeah. You're born in 69, but you wrote and directed and acted in a play called A Boy and the Soul. Mm-hmm. And in it, um, or rather in the beginning, you give pretty vivid description of what this house looks like. And I wrote some of it down. Oh. There's a stereo, soul LPs and 45s, an artificial white Christmas tree, an easy bake oven, and um, a song uh, by The Switch. Oh, yeah. That I was playing on repeat while driving over here. How accurate is that snapshot of your life very, in the late 70s? That's very accurate. Is it fair? I think it's very fair. I think, you know, I grew up at a time when I think, um, I don't know, I think that I grew up in a very, I don't know, working class African American home. And I think that, um, you know, that music was very important to us. And I think that I, I wrote that play. Um, it was an, an examination of like culture, of, of sort of a coming in of age story um, in your 30s when your parents are getting older and you're actually becoming, um, you're moving into adulthood but still someone's kid. And while you're, you know, ushering your parents onto their next stage as well. So I was really just wrestling with a lot of things and uh, and really taking stock right. of what we come from and what we're made of and then seeing how will that will propel us forward. And the conduit is music that we all have that in common. And I love that, like, you know, it's a show I developed, what, it was in 2008. Eight. Oh, look at you. Oh, you did your work, 2008. Um, I started writing it in 2005, though, and then um, I did some other smaller productions, and then, I, then it premiered in New York, and 
went to London and things like that, and even Australia. And the thing, the common thing that I get is that everyone relates to it. It becomes because I, I write so specifically about a certain neighborhood, a family. Mm-hmm. And so, like you were saying when you came in, you're like, you, it reminded you of your childhood, you know, coming from Chicago. And I, I think that's the greatest uh, acknowledgement that you write something that's just essentially just very human. And that's what I was trying to do and just sort of like tell my story to tell your story. Right. I think that that's hopefully what I think you can do best with a solo form. Mm. As a teenager at that time in West Philadelphia, what did you make of your surroundings? Did you find it as a lot? Because you wrote this play in your Mm thirties, but in the moment, did you feel it to be alive and full? What do you remember about being a teen then? I I do. But I wonder if I look at it in sort of like in technicolor view uh, in hindsight, but I do think that my neighborhood was alive and creative and felt a little dangerous at times. But um, what did your parents do? You know, my parents, my parents were very simple, hardworking. Like my dad, uh, he refinished floors. Uh, he worked for this, um, I think it was called Bird and Company. And basically, he basically, <laughs> he, and I would work with them during the summers. He would teach me how to um, resand floors and I'd help him out. And my mother worked in a bank. She was, uh, you know, white collar, just, you know, customer service at First Pennsylvania Bank. Um, you did like a movement, yeah. And you were personifying her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She, she worked in a bank. It was like a proper. Yeah, so it was like you know they they were hardworking people who um they just um I don't know they just imparted values of trying to just become better people in some way. Like we didn't have a lot, mm-hmm. but we had um a lot of like my mother would if I wanted to go to the to the moon. My mom would try to figure out how to get me there. How do we get Coleman there? Exactly. How do we get me to the moon? Like when I when I told him I wanted to be an actor, it wasn't a problem. And I was the first kid to go to college, and sort of, um, you know, their hopes were that I would do something that would, you know, turn an income. And then I had this very precarious uh, career for a long time, but they still believed in it. They were like, you know, whatever it is that you want to do, and being a part of the world, and hopefully, you know, making the world a better place. Mm. You know. With, as little to nothing, you know? Uh, well, initially, though, you, you go to college at Temple and you're studying journalism. Mm-hmm. And was that something they were supportive of? Yeah, because, you know, I think that my, my parents, they, well, like I tell you, they're very simple people. And my dad was just like, he wanted me to do anything but work with my hands. Mm-hmm. He was very clear about that. He actually told me that one day when we were sanding floors and he was looking at, he was looking at me, he said, you know, he's like, you see me, my, my, my back hurts, things like that. My dad, my stepfather had like a fourth grade education and he was, he said it was very important for him, for me not to work with my hands, whatever that meant. Mm. Um, he said, if you do work with the hands, you know, create something beautiful. Like, and he would show me the floors and how beautiful they were and how he could, you know, take strip, strip them off and refinish them and make, and show me the cherry wood and things like that. Right. It was beautiful. So um, they were very simple people. And so by the time I went to college, it's they, weird they, they were just happy I went to college. You've you know? used <laughs> the word simple a few mm. times, and I, and I wonder what that means mm. to you. I guess, you know, I consider people from Philadelphia to be the salt of the earth. I think that when I say simple, they're not, not to say they're not complex, but they're not so complicated in terms of like what they actually feel or think they're just they're what you see is what you get Mm. i think there's no airs about these people i think that's where i come from i think that's why i know that generally people you know when i walk into one room in la to another room somewhere else i think i'm the same person because i I was just raised that way right um i I guess i don't know how to put on airs you know so i think i come from very simple people and not simple like uh, unintelligent but simple as in sort of um at the essence they just work through the world in a very simple way. Why do you think that is? 
Huh, that's a good question. I, I think it's because... I wonder if it's because maybe their expectations on the world were not huge. I think that it was simple about providing for a family, um, having some good times, some good music, love. Mm. Um, but it wasn't about like, you know, like everyone I know, m- most of my family, they all still live in West Philadelphia. Right. And I think that's because they're very simple and they're what their wants and needs are. And I think, um, they're happy that way. For a long time, I was wondering, like, why don't you guys ever want to? Do you want? Don't you want to live downtown or in the Northeast or something? But now it was like it made sense, and they were comfortable. Just like how I found that even more so about Aretha Franklin. The fact that Aretha right. Franklin was, you know, the most legendary singer who could probably live and do whatever she wanted, and she had she was very simple to the core. Mm. She liked to sing, and she liked to go to her church, and she liked the things that she liked that were still very Detroit, very simple things you know right it's, it sounds simple yeah but it sounds very impossible to me it doesn't sound very simple to me because i can't fit into that and i wonder if you feel the same about you know you're an actor you're a director these are not simple things and they lend themselves to emotional complexity mm-hmm. Hmm. i think i'm always trying to i i can say this as I've been starting to direct for like television or I'm direct, I'm, I'm attached to direct a couple of films. And each time I'm in these meetings with these, these brilliant people who have done this work before, I'm always trying to bring it to a simpler place. I know that that's naturally what I'm always trying to do. And right. I think it's maybe from my roots in the theater where it's like kind of make something out of nothing when I started out in like small black box theaters in San Francisco and I was producing theater for 500 bucks, but I had some ideas and some movement and some music and some actors that were game. And I think at the core, I think I'm always trying to utilize that because that's very healthy for me. It's, it's like almost like how we're playing as kids and we're playing make believe and we have ideas and trying to bring that stuff together and I think it's actually very simple. Actually, I think sometimes we let things get way too complicated. Right. You know, I think the way I think we I think they get way complicated, <laughs> way more complicated than it is. I think honestly, I tell people um, there are some colleagues of mine who, as an actor, I don't think acting is. I think people make more of it than actually it is, and I think sometimes it get, it takes them so far away from actually the essence of what acting is. And I think it's about like being prepared, researching. Being in, and then I sort of let let go and be in the center of it, mm. and actually just sort of like um, I think sometimes people get way too heady about it, about process and things like that. I think it's all process, but it's all the way you handle it, and I think you have to handle it gently and with some grace and respect and hard work. But I think hard work is also it can be simple, mm. you know. You know the you know the tasks that are ahead of you, and uh, you just prepare well and you give it your all and then you release you also have to release and let go that's how you make great art in any way mm. i think you can't you can't hold, you can't hold on to it too tight point into acting is that you started in journalism mm-hmm. 
and then you took a class at Temple, mm-hmm. and you had a professor who said, essentially, you have a gift, yeah. and uh, you know maybe this is something you should try. But I feel like the story, I've heard the story is better than that. So, <laughs> so I'm going to get rid of the, the interview I read. Okay, and I'll tell you the, the, the real story. The real story is um, I grew up... Uh, Honestly, I, it's almost odd to me that I'm sitting here with you um, having an interview about acting because when I tell you I was growing up in school, I was not the um, effervescent, expressive one. I was shy. I was very quiet, very studious. I had a lisp, which also probably catered to it. Um, so, um, and also I wore my sister's hand-me-down clothes whether my brother to my sister to me, um, as a poor kid. And um, I didn't have a lot of confidence. So I think I was in school studying journalism because I, I watched everything. And I, 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 by the time I got out of high school, I thought the idea of like writing and writing um, as a profession was interesting. And documenting the news or going to war-torn places was interesting. And I thought, oh, that's cool. So I was studying journalism at Temple, and then um, there was, I had some time to take an elective, and I thought, I've always been interested in like what acting was. Now, I come from a place where no one is an actor, right. and I didn't go to the theater, so I had no, I don't even know why or how I thought this would be, be interesting. Maybe I thought it was interesting, and I told, said this before to someone. I used to watch uh, that television show, Eight is Enough, and I remember there was a TV show back in the 70s, and there was a kid named Nicholas on it. And I just remember <laughs> thinking, I can do that, whatever Nicholas was doing, because he was, he was a good kid, cute kid, and he was, I was like, I think I can do that. But I think that was laid, a foundation laid in my brain a long time before I actually did anything about it. So in school, I took an elective, and I'm taking these classes, this one class, and this professor named Chris, he comes to me, me and this one girl, I think her name was Christina, we were killing it in this in this class. We, I don't know, whatever exercises he gave us, we just like took to it, and we were deep in it. And he pulled us aside one day, and he said, he told the both of us, he says, have you guys thought about acting as a major and I thought, no, what is that? I mean, I don't even know you can do that. He was, he was like, I think you should really investigate this, Coleman. And you too, Christina. I don't know what happened to her. But I, but I, took, but I, took, that, I took it to heart. And I just really thought, so I started taking some extra classes off campus at the mm. Walnut Street Theater School because I was very um, almost embarrassed to tell people that I was taking an acting class because people were like, who, who are you to take an acting class? Are you going to be an actor? You know, you, you know. I don't know, you know, people are. When he told you that, in that moment, what is going through your head? I thought no one has ever told me that I had a gift. Of of any kind? Of any kind. And it was the first time somebody said I had a gift in something. And I just never, not that, you know, I heard that, you know, I've been gifted because I was in, you know, scholar's magnet and I had great good grades. So I was gifted. I was in the gifted program. But someone told me actually I had a gift doing something and the gift felt like it did. I I think about that. The word gift, it actually felt like a gift Mm. because I felt like I felt good about it. And I felt like I had something to give actually with it, you know? So, um, did you believe him? I did. I did. The way, the way he spoke to me, he was very, you know, I I guess, you know, the, the best teachers, you know, I think is what you can be is being impressionable, you know, give a great impression on someone. And I really, um, I took his words to heart. I wish I tried to find him years ago. 
I think he was an actor in Philadelphia for a while too. And then I think I just could never contact him. I just wanted to say thank you to him. So Chris, if you're listening, you used to teach at Temple University. Um, <laughs> I don't know his last name, but Chris was a good guy. Um, he kind of like he was kind of a dude too, um, but he really did uh, inspire me to keep going. And so that's why I started taking classes off campus. And then from there, I moved to San Francisco. And I thought I'd give it a try. And everything I've been doing, I've done by by working. Mm. I, I, didn't, I don't have any straight-up formal training. I took probably a total of three or four classes in my life. Yeah. And then everything else is by watching, by showing up to, to rehearsals that I wasn't a part of. <laughs> um, you know, asking fellow actors, like, how do I get a laugh on something? As a writer, I feel like I've been just seeing a lot of plays and I, th I think I seem to start writing things because I'm frustrated with the form of something like if I see something like A Boy and a Soul was written because I didn't particularly love solo shows mm. and I thought well this is the way I think a solo show could work right that I would be interested in you know I'd see this show <laughs> that's a good reason to do something yeah you know I don't you, like anything else I'll write it I'll write something I think that I'm gonna try <laughs> Fuck everyone. <laughs> that basically that's it. The Coleman Show. <laughs> is that also what your podcast is about? That's that's what my podcast. I don't is like about. any other podcast. It's just um, that's why I'm going to start a podcast. Great, because you know, I hate podcasts. I'm totally kidding. No, no, you can have my microphone. It's <laughs> fine. <laughs> you know, but this is a common thread in the in the little I know about you, which is there are traditional narratives and traditional formats to create something and to tell a story, and um, in particular. I know you have talked about in the past about you coming out mm -hmm. is something that uh, rather your story varies from the common conception or the preconception people have about people coming out, especially people of color coming Absolutely. out. Absolutely. And I think it's funny. Um, one of my, was it a boy and a soul? It was a boy and a soul. There was a critic in yeah. San Francisco who said, she doubted the validity of my story because from what she knows from watching documentaries right. that it's very hard to come out in the African-American community. And I was like, well, what the, this is the whole reason why I, I wrote this. What the fuck? I'm, I was like, wait, isn't that the point of theater and also to add your voice to the chorus? And I thought, who's going to doubt the validity of my own story? You know, so, so, and I wrote a real scathing letter to her and then, but I didn't send it because I didn't think it, Why? Mattered. because it didn't matter. She was going to feel the way she's going to feel no matter what. You should have sent it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I sent it now. We could post it online. <laughs> could you imagine? Oh just send a letter now and just like, look. Trust me, I'm not hurt by this thing that happened <laughs> 10, 15 years ago. I've just been holding on to this letter. I just thought it was fascinating that she thought, and also she was also a white woman. And I thought, oh, it's very interesting that the, the story that she would like mm -hmm. my story to be. Right. Instead of me saying that this is um, trying to inspire some others, that it's, you can come out in your family. You can be met with love. You use the, you use the word fascinating, but mm -hmm. you mean bullshit, right? Oh, yeah, bullshit. Basically. Okay. Yeah. You know, I try to, you know. Do you I need try, me to I, decode? I try to go high. The... I try to go high. You go low for me. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear that whole sentence until I did. I have to go low? That's such a terrible deal. <laughs> no, but it, we, sometimes you need that balance. You need somebody to go low for you. You, you know what? Be... I'll, I'm, See, I'm the white person. That, that, I that's low. a wingman. That's yeah. a good wingman. I'll, I'll take care of it. Thank you very much. No problem. Really. <laughs> I do want to know, though, um, your older brother was like a ladies' man. Oh, he still is. Still is. Yeah. Um, 
He's cool. What was the interaction with your family? I know he was very supportive about you coming out. Yeah. But what was it like? What did happen? Um, it, <laughs> I, 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 it's actually, I, I wrote about it in A Boy and a Soul, and it really did happen that way. It was like a, a game telephone. Um, I, came out, <laughs> I came out to my mom. Uh, no, first I came out to my brother outside of a strip club in Philadelphia because he was trying to take me there to, uh, you know, to get some, you know, lap oh dances and things. God. And I was laughing and silly about it. And so I came out to him outside and he said, I love you. I'm, I'm glad you can tell me. And I was sobbing because it meant the world to me. And what a setting. It, yeah, right. It's true. And it was absolutely true. Um, but it makes sense because you, you, you're well, what I, he wanted of you was being pushed to its extreme at a strip club. That's exactly it. And, and you know, I, the thing that I pride my, myself and my family on, we, we try to be as authentic with each other as possible. And I knew that I was living in San Francisco and I, I just didn't want there to be an abyss between us. You know what I mean? I think that, you know, the more that I was like, you know, living my best life, they weren't a part of it. And that's just not the nature of our, our, our family. So I knew that by doing that, I wanted to get closer to them. And then I got a call from my sister who my brother promised that he wouldn't tell anybody. And uh, a week later, my sister calls me and she tells me she's mad at me. And I'm like, what? She says, I can't believe you told Rick first. <laughs> she was just mad because I told my brother first about right. her. And then we laughed about it. She said, I think you should tell mom. Did, um, any, uh, did anyone in your family feel like they already knew before you told them? Oh, I'll get to this. This will get to my mom. because I, So then the call goes, to, so my sister said, I think she should tell mom she shouldn't find out the way I did. And we had a laugh about it. I called my mom, and I told her uh, I had something to tell her. And she was like, what's wrong? What, you, 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 uh, did you get somebody pregnant? I'm like, no. Are you in jail? No, I'm not in jail. You know, so she, had, she thought it was going to be all these other extreme things. And then I came out to her, and she took a nice pause. And she said, okay, I love you. The first thing she wanted to make sure she knew was that she, I, she had to think about it, but she loved me. Um, but you know, she, she said, but you know, and I'll, I'll actually do it. But you know, I can't tell your stepfather this. I said, okay, okay, mom. So I hung up. 20 minutes later, the phone rings and my mother says, Jay, they call me Jay, that's my nickname. Jay, well, I told your stepfather about what we talked about. I said, what? No, what? She said, oh, I said, what did he say? He said, hold on. He gets on the phone. Jay, I'm like, uh, yeah, 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 pop. Uh, well, you know what me and your mom talked about? I said, yeah. Well, uh, he's from the South. That's why I was thinking to you. Well, uh, I just want you to know, uh, well, you, you, you know, you're a good boy. And um, he beat around the bush a bit and then he finally said um i love you there's nothing you can tell me that will make me stop loving you and um i knew that they had that that much love for me and uh like about a month later my mother came out to san francisco to visit me because she wanted to see almost like see who i was and see if i was still the same boy that she knew and i was of course she just and i think it i think they're people in our families that are supposed to open us up and challenge the norms of what we think. And I know she came out there and we walked around the Castro and nothing was unusual to her. She was like, oh, I thought I had one idea about what this is, but now you're showing me so much more. I know that my son is my son. I know that my, her world just expanded. 
and then it expanded so much. She actually went. We <laughs> we walked into um, a bar. She said, "Do you want a drink?" I'm like, "Oh, uh, yeah." She said, "Come on, I want to take my son for a drink." And we go into some bar. I'm like, "Oh my god, I don't want to go into this bar." We go into this bar, and I'm like, "Okay, well, you know, just some some gay bar in the Castro." I'm like, "Oh my god, I hope nobody's doing anything. What's happening?" I was like, "So I was so conservative. I was like, oh, what's going on?'" Mom was like, "Is there a bathroom?" Is hold on, let me go use the bathroom and see how it's ready, see if it's clean and everything. So I did. Came back. I come back. She's bought a couple cocktails talking to people and she was just but she wanted to she wanted to get to know me even more so and know my world and it and it kept us close um up until both my mom and my stepfather both passed away in 2006 like six months apart from each other they were mm. very much in love and um yeah but i know that i had people who are really truly um people who really loved me and well like i say again they were simple people and at the end of the day just wanted to know that that i was a good person and I was making a um, good impression on the world. And um, I don't know, just trying to do, trying to do good, you know, be a successful human being in the world. And that doesn't mean like success, like the way we think of success. I think it's just by like having a job, making a difference, having a sense of who you are spiritually. Um, <laughs> you know, that's it. Basic. That was a good story. Thank you. <laughs> it got uh, emotional there. Yeah, it does. It does because it it's like, and I forget because these are these are things that I don't know if you bury them, but it's like, like no one asks me to talk about that on the daily, so I have no, you know. So I'm like, suddenly it it hits a, um, a button, a string, or something that you realize is probably always a little bit right here, but you don't really deal with that. But you ask something that's so personal. I'm like, oh my god, okay, wow. Uh, yeah. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I should have did more research on you. You get people to cry. Oh, <laughs> no. I would have said, no, thank you. I'm not doing that show. <laughs> I could imagine. I'm like, I'm not in tune with my feelings. No, thank you. <laughs> That's a personal choice you have to make. <laughs> San Francisco what happens what's what is you what, know what are those days <laughs> right? well because well, well, you're there you have to be there in the early 90s is, is what my clock yeah. says yeah that's exactly it so um it's a strange like punk is happening then yeah rave is the Castro is really like the, coming into its and, own and rave is happening and yeah. you know 
I had like CC Peniston was playing and you know, I was living my best life. I moved out there. I was 21 years old and you know, you get caught up. Thank God. I think that I've, maybe it's because I, I think I've, I really believe I had some, um, a good family to, you know, that gave me some foundation because I, I listen, I went to San Francisco in the nineties and it was, it was wild. There was, you know, there's, there's, Things, there's ecstasy, there's weed, there's parties, there's things. You're young. Yeah. You want to find yourself. And I, you know, I did you find yourself? I did. I think I did. I think I was there for my whole twenties, and I think I found myself. And I'm, that's why I was able to move out of there because I understood who I was. Mm-hmm. But I went there because I actually went there because one of my best friends, guy, I had moved there. I was um, my parents are moving to Virginia, and. I was, you know, getting out of school and he moved to San Francisco and there was three guys living in a studio apartment in the Tenderloin. And he was like, come on out. You'll be the fourth. Four guys living in a studio apartment in the Tenderloin. I slept literally in a walk-in closet. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think I look at it now, it's kind of romantic. It's kind of fun. It was hard and I was really poor. And, I, and you know, I don't come from like wealthy people. So it was like, there were times where I thought I can't afford this career. What, what do I look like coming out here to try to become an artist in, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, which was much cheaper than it is now. You could actually be an artist there. Yeah. So, um, I got a job at a place called the kennel club, uh, that had a night called the box. The kennel club would play all different kinds of music on Sunday nights. Like people like Angelique Kijo would come and perform. Mm-hmm. What Couple area of, is this in? That was in uh, Hayes Valley. Mm-hmm. So I worked there and I was a bartender and I made a ton of money. Well, I got the job because I lied, actually. I had no bartending experience, but apparently I knew that I'd be a great actor because I lied my way into this job. Um, What'd you I, say? Well, I said, um, you know, bartended at a couple of places in, in Philadelphia. I didn't really bartend. I, you know, I, I waited tables, but they needed a bartender and I needed money. Money. So um, I learned everything by going home and looking in books about bartending, about how to make a cocktail. And it was all trial and error. I got hired because of personality. But see, this is your entire career. It's built on lies. (laughs) (laughs) No, totally kidding. It's not. I sort of like hit it up and you spiked it across the net. I wasn't going to say that. No, it's built on like saying no formal training. No. But but I have no, no formal training, but I think the eagerness and the interest to learn and to learn quickly. You know, I think that that's the thing that I have, I, I have a tattoo that says yes. I know that I have a capacity of learning. The why? You can barely see the why. But that's the point. Oh. You have to lean into it. It's there. You just can't see it. <laughs> Did it actually just fade away? No, it just wasn't there. I never added it. Oh, really? Yeah. It's for you to lean into it. <laughs> it's all Jedi mind tricks. <laughs> I almost want to throw this pen at you. I know you do. Exactly. Totally. Exactly. <laughs> now we're fighting. I know. It was going so well. Then it, it was. just derailed when he got my tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a disapproving. I need to be nowhere. the disapproving parent. <laughs> exactly. You're, that, like, you're mad at it. You want no, me to go back no, and get it No, no, it's fine. It's just like, okay, no, it's fine. Wait, do you have no. any tattoos? No, 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 no. Okay. Well, you're like, no, no, no. Like, no. and all of a sudden oh, you clutch your pearls. Oh, well, you're like, why? I don't think I'm afraid of needles. What? It's not a needle. It's well, like it's a, but all of it though. I don't. I don't like shots. I don't. I just. I'm not gonna like that. Do you have piercings? No. Okay. But we got work to do. Okay. You're gonna work gonna after the show. You, I'm gonna give you a tattoo like on the show. Oh my god! <laughs> the show really would. The numbers would go up. I think they'd be like, "What the fuck's happening They're on like, this oh. podcast?" <laughs> Coleman's just giving this dude a tattoo. It's the weirdest thing to happen. No, so I like that. There's a uh, a guiding philosophy behind it, though. Yeah, I think so. Why? Well, listen, I think that generally, I just have a, 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 a an enormous. Curiosity. And so anything that I don't know how to do, I really feel like, oh, I'll figure it out. 
I really feel like I'm one of those guys who are like, yeah, I don't know how to bartend, but I'll learn. Right. Um, that's what I think that's most of my career. I've been in musicals by Candor and Ebb. And actually what turned things down, be like, you know, I don't sing like that and I don't dance like that. They were like, we still want you. I'm like, great, I'll learn it. So then I would <laughs> learn how to dance and sing and doing things like when I played Billy Flynn on, on, in Chicago, they gave me the full choreography that they never give anyone mm. because they believed I could do it because they were, they were like, can we give you the full choreography? I'm like, let's try it. I'm game. Let's try it. I'm like, I don't know. But maybe that's it because I think that sometimes I think it's best for me not to know a lot. Like sometimes I go into meetings where I'm like, I'm not sure exactly what that person does, but it allows me to be authentic because I'm not thinking, oh, this is the president of this studio. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know. I'm just having a meeting with this dude and we're going to sit up and chop it up and we'll talk about his family and things. And I'll, it's not, whether it's a job or not, I'm not going to walk out with a new friend. <laughs> you know, is that how you've approached it all? That's the way I approach most things. I think it's it's always less about, as we know, even this podcast. We may think we're here for a podcast, but it's also it's all, it's about so much more. Always, you never know what we're going to learn or discover or take away with this. But but by saying yes and leaning into it and leaning to whatever it is. It opens us up to some some magic, I think, and I think mm. that's where magic is in the world. You know? I, it's it's in the uh, situations where you have an option to say yes or no. Yeah, I've said yes to things where I thought I should have said no, mm -hmm. and then you stumble into it, and it's like, oh wait, yeah, there's something that happens here. Absolutely, when you think you're not going to like something, especially. Yeah, it's true. I think, and I think to do the things. It's funny because I think I'm doing things right now in my career but also my life that I think I'm putting myself in places that I'm not as comfortable because um, mm. I think you know you get stagnant in that way and I feel like well, so you made a choice to, to pivot from theater to film not that you're not doing theater but mm -hmm. a lot of people a lot of your friends I imagine are in theater that is what they're going to do they do not have an interest in, in going to film or television you know, a lot of people actually do have an interest. Most of my theater friends, that for some reason, I don't know, it's it's such opposites. Most of my television film, television and film friends are dying to do theater. My theater friends are dying to do film and television. It's like no one's happy with what they're doing. Yes. Me, I just go back and forth between genres and uh, mediums because I feel you like... You mean you get to make all of them jealous? Basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess make everybody jealous. No, because I, I but also because I'm, I'm just curious and I'm just like, I'm, I'm cool with doing either. But I've never, but the thing is, get this. I have never sought out, let's say television film. I, I wasn't that person. I was just like, I just want to do good work and like wherever it comes. Um, I was really looking at the art first. Really. I was one of those people who probably not to my advantage at times was always looking at the art rather than the commerce. Mm. There's something that said, you know, there were times in my career where I thought, oh, I just want to get a, a job on some dumb show saying something dumb and making a ton of money. And it never happened because I realized that that's just not my, that's, I don't give up everything for that. Right. I, I have to do things that are meaningful in some way. Also, the people who get those jobs do not think of it as a dumb show where you're saying dumb lines. I feel like, <laughs> exactly. a, lot, I feel like a lot of the Some probably like, walking in with like an attitude yes, being like, and knowing that I'm not going to get you it. feel you don't want to do it. Yeah, they feel like that I'm looking down on every line. What about The Walking Dead? I'm not saying that's dumb. No, no, it's brilliant, actually. I've never you seen know, a single episode. You know what? I never saw one episode of The Walking Dead, and I'm on fear. I'm on fear of The Walking Dead. So I so never saw... Is that saw, the, sp the spin-off? Yeah, we're the spin-off. We're, okay. we're the companion series. Oh, the companion series. And I never thought of being on any sort of like horror zombie genre. And then I read the script, and it was like, again, it was like, oh, 
I think I had it all wrong. It's really interesting storytelling and a great character. And um, I was surprised that, you know, it was the first audition that my new agents got me. And I thought, oh, really, they don't understand me at all. I'm like, this is not going to work out. <laughs> and then yeah. they were they were right. They were like, oh, no, this is what you want to do. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that's been now going on for what almost we'll go into season five next year. Walk me through working with uh, Spike Lee. Spike Lee? Hmm, how can I walk you through that? Well, I, I, I first I, met I, Spike Lee. I have a feeling mm-hmm. you'll give um, <laughs> as honest of an answer as you can. Yeah. Oh no, I'll give I'll give you an honest impression of Spike. Spike is. Um, I first met Spike Lee when was it through Passing Strange? Yes, it was based on what I've read. Yes, it is. He came and saw <laughs> Passing Strange like uh, a thousand times. And then he decided he wanted to, you know, do the documentary sort of hybrid of it, which we did. And from there, then I did uh, uh, Miracle at St. Anna. I had a small role in that. And then Red Hook Summer. I did some voice work on one of his last years, uh, Chirac or something. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Red Hook, you know, you Red had, Hook Summer was the yeah. one where I, I think where we really worked together. You got that scene that is phenomenal. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. I think, you know, working with Spike is like working with a, a basketball coach. He's like, you know, he's hanging outside of a car when you your van pulls up and he's like, he rolls down. He's like, Coleman. I'm like, yeah, you you going to be able to be emotional today in that scene? You're going to be able to emo- be emotional? Yeah. You going to be able to do it again and again? Yeah. And so I'm like, we look like we're annoyed with each other. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go get some breakfast. All right. <laughs> like, calm down. <laughs> and then, because he's like, he's pumping you up. Right. You know what I mean? And I have to be very calm when I'm working, but I know he wanted me pumped. He wanted to make sure that I had it, but he's like, get in there. Um, I loved working with Spike. Spike is a really, um, he's, he's kind. He, he, he asks a lot of his, um, company and his crew. He wants everyone to bring their A game. Um, he respects you when you work hard. He's, um, he's spirited. He's, uh, he has a definite opinion about work and, and, and the way you work. But I've had such a great time with him. I really, I really, I've had a great time working with Spike. We haven't worked together in a long time, though. Mm. He has, uh, at this point, such a huge body of work. Yeah. That I think people are, I think it's tough for a lot of people to watch newer stuff when you've seen, you know, like going back to She's Gonna Have It. Well, that's like with Woody Allen as well. It's like it's hard to watch, you know, you watch their old stuff. You're like, oh, this is when they were such innovative artists and they were really they were really unaware of exactly what they were doing, right? but they were ballsy as hell. And I think we always come, we can always compare like Spike and whether it's, you know, anyone who's, you know, Spike is, I haven't seen Black Klansman yet, but I hear it's like, it's worth saying. People are, people yeah. are really happy with it. But you know, you know, when Spike was doing his dolly shot and I'm sure he didn't know exactly what he was doing, but he had a feeling about it and he mm-hmm. wanted to try this thing, you know, but now that you, you've seen it now a few times and you're like, okay, here it is. And I so like I like it. Yeah, you got you got to have one. It's a signature. It's a signature shot. Yeah. yeah. What is what does that mean to you to have one of those moments? To have one of the signature shots of Spike Lee. Yeah, it's, I mean, you like, know, it's really cool. It's ima- a- imagine you um, as a kid in West Philadelphia thinking about a future self. Man, <laughs> I think honestly, this is it. I'll, I'll be very honest with you. I think my mother, my mother had more vision for what I could do or who I could work with than I had. She would always say things like, oh, I, she was, my mother would write Oprah. My mother would write Oprah when I was a struggling actor. 
She wrote her like four times that, you know, Oprah can help Like a me. letter? Yeah, she wrote, yeah. You know, people used to write Oprah, like they're writing, you know, mm-hmm. Santa Claus. Right. But yeah. <laughs> you know, essentially. Yeah, basically, she's Santa Claus. So but my, my mother would write Oprah and ask Oprah to help me. She wrote Oprah like four times. Like, could you help out, you know, I just know if Oprah, and you know, when she would say like, oh, if Spike Lee just knew you and knew your work, he would, he'd be wonderful. I really wish Steven Spielberg would know you. All these things, I had no vision for that. I had no, I had no thought. I'm like, you know, mom, all right, cool. I'm just going to work and working in the theater, things happen. I'm, mm. I'm not, I'm not checking for that because I don't want to be disappointed. And I've worked with everyone that my mother wanted me to work with. Everyone. And have a friendship with these people, <laughs> you know? So I'm like, I didn't, I didn't intend for that. She manifests that. I think she did manifest that. I think sometimes people, I know a lot of times in my life that, um, it's amazing when someone sees something in you that you don't even see in yourself. I think that's how I've become a director and a, and a writer. I think sometimes someone may call on it and you're like, oh, I didn't know that that's what I was trying to do by having an opinion about all these things. They're like, oh, you're a director. Would you want to direct this thing? And I just thought I was an actor who just had a big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Oh, well, you have a lot of stories to tell. Um, you're very interested in, in things in the world. I'm like, no, which is because I read the New York Times and I'm interested in art and architecture and science and travel. Yeah, you're a writer. Huh, okay, I'll try to write something, you know? It's interesting that you've had encouragement at certain stops in your life. Mm-hmm. Do you think you've needed that, or do you think you would have found that yourself? I think everyone needs it, and I think sometimes, I think, I mean, I, mean, I think I need it now. I think no one is what as... What do you need now? I think I need, you know, I need you to encourage me right now. Not, not, not you, no, but I think... No, I, sure. I, no, I'm just thinking generally... Anything you want, I got you I think back. it's funny, I think that everyone needs encouragement and I think these do it, these days, everyone's seeking encouragement in, in uh, small, but really, um, I don't know, imposing ways, like well, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or something like that. Those things are actually encouragement. You know what I mean? For sometimes, I think we're redesigning the, the way we think we need encouragement in some way. Sometimes you need a word. I think that's why people are posting sometimes. But see, there's you know? a, I feel, isn't there a difference between, you know, the encouragement that you had at Temple mm-hmm. was a teacher that you met and you were in his class. Mm-hmm. The encouragement to direct an episode of Fear of the Walking Dead was, I imagine, a showrunner on there or someone, some EP telling you, you can do this. That was it. So those are very interpersonal. Yeah. You are here in this room with me. Mm-hmm. The stuff on Instagram... Mm-hmm. On Twitter, it's like those moments, they don't feel like, you know, when your teacher told you that at Temple and you're 18, 19, or probably 20, actually, it came as a surprise. Mm-hmm. Its power lived in spontaneity because yeah. it was not born out of something that was calculated. Right. You're absolutely it, right. You're absolutely right. But it's funny because I talked to my, my sister has said this to me several times and I always wonder, you know, you, you think that you're very much alike. Um, and think that, oh, I get my encouragement from the people close to me, things like that. And my sister would just constantly say, oh, I wish, you know, I had somebody. She constantly needs encouragement. And I would see sometimes in on her posts that she's doing it because she needs encouragement. She needs somebody to, to, to co-sign her. Mm-hmm. Now, I think naturally I do have something more inside of me where I do have my, I know how to encourage myself, whether to motivate myself to do something, to believe that you have agency or a voice in some way. So I think that, um, it does, you just have, 
you have to work on the self as well. You know, I think because you can self-encouragement is the best encouragement. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maybe my fear is just that if we're relying on encouragement from people on the Internet. Yeah. It feels like dangerous territory. It, I think that is dangerous because it's never ending because you constantly need it. Also, they're strangers. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know what their interests are. No. And you can't believe everything you hear. And unlike people in real life, people on the Internet... They can turn on a dime, and they do, and they do, <laughs> and, and they and they do because they have no problem with doing that. Yeah, well, because it's just some words and a, a heart or something. It's not really actually, and they feel like they can give and take it away, or say something and be, um, you know, not so kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that, uh, but also I think it's also because everything has been moving so fast, and we're all still ad- adapting and learning how to use everything. You know, the moment we had cell phones and, you know, people still don't know how to use cell phones. <laughs> you know, people are still just like, you know, talking loudly at the gym on their phone. I'm like, dude, you know, you nobody needs to hear your private conversation. <laughs> you know, why don't you know how to use this yet? You know? <laughs> it's bizarre. Yeah. You're living in Los Angeles now. You were in New York and London for a time. Yes. Um, it's an interesting time to be living here, mm-hmm. especially as an actor and a director. How are you feeling about we're talking about things moving fast? The conversation about being an artist in the city seems to be changing, I'd say, what, every other week? I think that L.A. feels like New York felt for me. And uh, like when I would come up and visit in the late 80s and 90s, it feels like um, if you see a lot of things building. You see lots of areas that are like uh, a bit more cool and interesting, like the Arts District or... That's why I live, you know, downtown because I want it to be near people and not just, you know, L.A.'s most sanitized, you know, perfect vision of itself. I want some of the grit and know that I can get to that perfect, you know, L.A. life if I need if I need that as well. Mm. But the idea that there's mountains and sky and you can see clearly, I think you can see vast, far and wide. That's what I was longing for. New York started to be built up and I couldn't see anymore, to be very honest. Mm. I. Literally, a hotel was being built in front of my window, and I thought, I literally can't see anymore. Yeah. And it was dark and gloomy. and Time to move. It's time to move. But I think that L.A. is, um, a lot of people have been moving to L.A. as well because of uh, being, um, you know, you can't afford to live in New York anymore in many ways. You mm-hmm. know, I think that, and have the lifestyle that you like. It's like, I, I enjoy a nice, healthy lifestyle, and um, I enjoy good things, but sweet Jesus, the price you would pay for it in New York is absolutely outstanding. Mm. And here you can actually have a, um, you could, I believe that you can find places to, um, uh, say you don't work to live, live to work. <laughs> you, you, you know, you, so you, you're working and you're living as well. I find times where I have much more time to breathe and relax. And like I was telling you earlier, it's a barbecue and, yeah. and, um, socialize. And I think that, um, LA, I think, is really um, having sort of um, a renaissance when it comes to being an artist. And I think that it's less, it's not just about film and television anymore, but I do think it's about like, uh, I tell you, I've never been more obsessed with like architecture in this town and going around and seeing why, you know, in the restaurant culture, you know, just I think it's really fascinating and really healthy. Has your mission statement as an artist changed? Here? I mean, well, because we were thinking about the Spike Lee 
you know, when he was younger, people felt his films felt full of more full of life and and vital. And the the older he got, and that's true of many artists, right? It's like the older you get, it seems you're not reinventing the wheel. I think. Okay, I'll say this. I think that my. Oh well, I'm about to be very very honest with you. About a year and a half ago, I found myself having more tension with some collaborators, whether it's with producers or artistic directors, you name it. And uh, we were wrestling more. And I start to wonder why there was so, so much tension when it comes to creating work. And I knew that I was finding more of my own voice and what I believed and knowing that I had a strong opinion about it. And sometimes when creating art, no one tells a painter what to paint and gives notes on what to paint. You know, that should be this color and it should be this size and reflecting light this way. And I think I've been really sort of asking more of that, of that um, agency as a creative by saying, that's what I think it is. And not for it to be altered by all these other voices and marketing people and people who think that, oh, this pe- people will come to this if we do this and that and make sure that's clear. It's like, and you know, and it's funny because it's like, I'm very much a theater artist who, who, and I love to collaborate, but I think what I've been asking for is really, and giving myself more permission is to be at the head of the table and for me to be the ultimate voice and for my opinion to matter as much as these others, you know, the producers, the money people, board or directors, you name it. And that's a bit of a struggle. So when you all of a sudden become that person because mm. your life experience, the way you've been creating art for many years, suddenly you're in that position and you're fighting for that position. And I know that that was, um, I guess if it's part of my mission statement, I'm creating things that I really, but I've always done this. I really create things that I really care about. I can't, I can look back. Some guy, um, I was getting this um, emerging writers award or something. And I was like, first of all, I was like, wow consider myself still like a kid I'm like why am I getting this award it's kind of like for you know old dudes who've been doing this for a thousand years but I guess I am so he he started to rattle off my resume for years and it was the first time I took a moment to look back because I just keep going forward and doing new things and I was really proud of what he said and what he laid out and I start to see the career trajectory that I've had which was about being in service which was about creating art that I think will last dissecting American culture, I think, you know what I mean? It's like, I really look at everything I've done. I've done, I've done even like people are like, well, what about the walk, Fear the Walking Dead? I'm like, no, that's part of it. People are like, timeless. You know, I played, you know, uh, you, you know, the Lone Ranger and things like that. Like, yeah, these things matter to me. Everything I've done is something that matters. And mm-hmm. I think even more so, that's amplified even more in my work. That um, I have a piece that when it comes out, I think that I told someone this, I said, it's coming out at the Geffen Playhouse next year. It's uh, called Lights Out Net King Cole. And if anyone wants to know what I really feel as an artist right now in these times, they can go right to this piece. I think this is one of those um, pieces of theater or pieces of work that I feel like, like Athel Fugard says with um, Blood Knot. He said, this is where I really be, this is where I truly found my voice as an artist. And I think this piece for me is where I truly found my voice and what I'm committed to and what I want to say in the world and how we can say it. It's deconstructing the American dream, basically. It's deconstructing an American icon and and really um, deconstructing the form of theater. Um, and it's sort of like, it's a mixture of rage and love. 
it, it's so strange that you're saying this. This is entirely personal now. Hmm. But yesterday, I was like, I, I listened to Nat King Cole for about four hours straight. And I was thinking, why has there not been, or has there been, I was asking people, has there been a fictional recreation of him in some way? Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. I promise you, this is true. And I will <laughs> I have references to, to prove that I asked people this in text. Okay. Isn't that, isn't that a, it's, well, it's part of the zeitgeist. Look, cause we have body language the same all of a sudden. Well, cause I'm like so stunned. I was, when you, when you said that, I was like, you're fucking kidding me. Dude, this, wow, that's wild. But see, this, <laughs> this part of the reason why we had to sit and talk to each other. Like I said, there's always bigger reasons about this. You've been, you, something. Has, see, that has to be cosmic. That has to be, ha- of course. Ha- that, I mean, I don't like, I don't want to sound so woo woo, but it's like. That has to what be. Are the, what other way is there to explain I don't it? know. I don't you know. You listen for four hours, Nat King Cole, and suddenly towards the end of this interview, I'm like, okay, by the way, the thing that I love the most is this thing about Nat King Cole. Yeah. That, <laughs> <laughs> I know you're tripping. So while you're tripping, I'm going to just tell you a little bit about it. I got this commission from People's Light and Theater Company in Philadelphia about a year and a half ago, about two years ago. And... My friend Zach was like, I've been so curious about, like you. He was like, why hasn't anyone written anything about Nat King Cole? And I thought the only way I can examine Nat King Cole is through a lens of like, because I need to be have complete liberty and freedom. We did all this research, me and my uh, co-writer, Patricia McGregor, all this research on Nat King Cole. And I found that he became frustrating to me because he was constantly the most graceful gentleman. Yes. No matter what. <laughs> And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? In my four hours of research, I found that to be true, too. And you were, and at some point, you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Well, except no. for like an affair or two. There was almost There's nothing. an affair or two, things like that. But yet still, the dude, you know, he, get this. There was one, um, there was one article in Ebony Magazine where he, this is after his show um, was pulled off the air in 1957. Mm-hmm. After it was going for a year, he was hemorrhaging money. He was one of the producers. NBC could not find a national sponsor. He was, you know, one of the number one, you know, stars of our time. But yet still, they were so afraid of the pull of the South um, for, for national sponsors to sponsor a show. So um, he just, it was, it was a blow. And this, there's this one article he wrote, and he said, Madison Avenue is afraid of the dark. And it showed under all that grace and how much rage there was, subtle rage there was, and what his politics were, what he believed, and how he believed it. So I wanted to go through that lens. So we created this piece, which is quite dark, but it's quite beautiful and funny, but it deconstructs everything that we know about Americana, about um, iconography, about this American dream and, and principles of all that we stand on. And it becomes Brechtian at some point. Um, it takes it takes place fifteen minutes to places at the on the last night of Nat King Cole's show, and he's asking himself the question, you know, like what do you do when you have a platform? What do you say, and how do you say it? And he slips into it, sort of slips into sort of a very sort of like a Christmas Carol, or you know, we uh, suddenly you slip into a fever dream, mm. and the the whole television show starts turning in on itself. And all these things that are swirling around his mind. And Sammy Davis Jr., who was one of his dear friends, becomes the provocateur. And the play starts, it gets this weird meta feel. Um, and, it really, and so by the time you get to the song, uh, the Christmas song, 
you'll never be able to hear that song the same way again. That's great. Because by the time you get to it, you realize the cost. You realize um, everything that made Nat King Cole that you listen to with, with your family warmly every year, the cost that it took that man to sing that song. Right. Yeah. And for how long he sang that song. Yeah. And many different songs. Yeah, man. Yeah, so uh, yeah, this, so, I'm yeah. In. so I guess you're coming to opening night at the Geffen Playhouse at the Geffen Playhouse in February of 2019. <laughs> you're, you're selling tickets early. Go over to here. the geffenplayhouse.org. I will exactly. happily tickets accept. are on sale now. Dule Hill is plays uh, Nat King Cole. <laughs> you know him from Suits. Wow, you really? I don't usually let people pitch stuff. I full out pitched it, but you know what? I I, I wanted it. But you're into it because you're like, hey, that's what I wanted. It, you know. You wanted to know when tickets were available. You wanted to know. I'll come. Okay, good. Great. forward with the rest of your career you're gonna be 50 soon right no i'm gonna be 49 soon sorry you're gonna be 49 you soon. aged me man oh I'm, I'm such a youthful oh, you're so far <laughs> away from 50 sorry <laughs> so i'm gonna be 49 soon dylan we can change it in the edit let me ask it again yes so you're gonna be 40 soon and <laughs> no 20 i'm gonna be 20 soon wow you're gonna be 20 soon i'm just you know you're I'm, the youngest person we've had on the show of benjamin button right here i'm turning back Right You're an actor, after all. Basically. Makes sense. Um, tell me what you are looking to do, obviously, outside of this play, with not just your career, but, um, you know, your state of mind, how you want to act and live through this world as you go into, hmm. I don't know, 50 is not older age. I think that's like 65, 70. But you're not a kid anymore. No. Thank you. I appreciate that. No problem. Um, but I, th I think just had to remind you. <laughs> you're like just. You want to strangle? You're getting older as we sit here, Coleman. Great. Um, so I honestly think that. And listen, I've told a couple of friends this, and they just don't believe it. I've <laughs> said, folks, I've said to friends that I probably have about another six years of doing what I'm doing. Why? Because I think I should be doing something else after that. I think as I get older, by the time I'm like 55, maybe I'll direct some things here and there, act on things here and there. Will I be doing things at the capacity that I'm doing right now? Absolutely not. I think that this is why sort of I'm setting up my world for that. 
um, and doing all the things I want to do while I'm, I'm healthy and strong and, and spirited. But I also think there's other things to do in the world. I, I think it's important to go and live other places and learn other languages. And I don't know. I think I'd like to teach somewhere. I, I really thought like, I'd like to go teach in like this little town called Collier in France and like work with some kids or something, you know, for like a summer. And then like go live in Japan and learn something new. I don't even know what, or maybe like learn, you know, you know, do something with wood or with my hands or something mm. and be there for like a year or something. But I feel like I would like to go and live other places and then still, you know, make contributions in art in some way, but not at the capacity I'm doing right now. I've been hustling for a long time. And, uh, a friend of mine actually told me recently in the last year, Coleman, you've planted so many seeds. You have so much going on. Do you know that you, you can actually take a break? And the idea of a break was so foreign to me. It was like, no, I work all the time and I plant seeds. And I thought, no, it's actually important to actually just go and uh, sometimes do nothing. Mm. And I've been learning that. And that's hard. That's hard for me. I have to go like really just like, okay, what if I went out by the pool and put my phone down and I just sat there and listened. And um, I've been buying a lot of, Wherever I go, I, I just came from like Brazil and, and Buenos Aires. And I also made, it's important to buy some books from about that land and, and architecture and style and things like that. So I've been buying lots of hardcover, big old art books and throwing them around my apartment so I can make sure that I'm looking at them and inspired and talking about architecture and and food and, you know, think different things. You know what I mean? I feel like I feel like I need to learn more, you know? I feel like I, I feel like, especially like as an actor, I feel like I know a lot about acting. I know a lot about directing and writing. And now, what don't I know? You know, I like to. It's okay to not know some things <laughs> and like just say, "I want to go learn something new, like a new language." It doesn't. It doesn't. I'm not afraid of it. You know, I love going to places where I don't speak the language. I'm like, I should learn. <laughs> you know. What about love? Love. I have love. I have love. I've, I've been married for four years. Oh my god. Yeah. How's that? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I'm very private about my love life because I think, you know, we always, I'll say this about that. We always got to keep something to ourselves. It's precious. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's precious and it's, it's, it's filled with love. I've had this, this same partner for 13 years oh. and that keeps me grounded. And, you know, I don't know. I think you need something to come home to, uh, as we seek to make a difference and create and all. So I have a good time in mm. my travel buddy. Here's my, I have only one question about this. Mm -hmm. How do you make it work for 13 years? I think we came into our relationship. We both wanted to be as honest and as generous and loving. I wanted somebody who's going to be my friend as well. That was very important because I feel like when you're first dating somebody, they wear the mask and the mask slips after five years. You're like, oh, you're the devil. I oh, didn't. it slips before that. Oh, yes, yeah, slips way before then. But then <laughs> there's many slips. But then you're like, wait, you weren't, you were your best, you're your best self. You didn't tell right. me this person. You and present I, your best version. Yeah. But I was like, no, I was like, I, I, I put, I put him through like an interview. I was like, mm -hmm. it was like, it was less romantic. It was more like, who are you really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, before I can get all romantic, tell me who you really are. How do you feel about these things? And, so that we know going down the road that that's the truth of the matter. I think the important thing is to know that people are going to grow at different times and have different needs. You've got to be along for that ride. You've got to be about 
about that person. You're like, hey, I'm about you and your growth. You need to go back to school and do this thing. I support you. It's got to be a relationship where you think everything doesn't have to deal with do with me. Every, it's not about me all the time. It's a, a lot of times it's about like, how can I support you? How can I help you achieve what you need to achieve for yourself? You, you're going to gain something in that. And also just being in service to the one you love. How cool is that? And also you got to learn how to, you got to laugh. You got to travel. You got to be honest about your feelings. Be like, you get on my nerves. Oh my God, you drive me crazy. And you <laughs> laugh about it. You, know, you drive me so crazy. <laughs> you know, but uh, the more you can just get over it and just be cool about it is, is, is the best. And you also have to have like your own, your own livelihood, you know, things that have nothing to do with the other person, you know? And support that person with that. You know, whether it's, you know, hey, you go to yoga and do that. I have no interest in that. But go ahead. How can I get you there? <laughs> <laughs> you know, or like, you know, <laughs> you know, I think that's healthy. You know, everyone shouldn't try to blend, bend in and be this weird unit that's always together and doing the same thing and finishing each other's sentences. I think that naturally will happen when you're just authentic with each other. Mm. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. What about you? Are you in a relationship? Yeah. How long? Uh, it's been it's hard when it gets turned on you, doesn't four it? Four or five months. Four or five months. Yeah. Do tell. How does how's it working out? It's, I think it's going pretty well. Yeah. I think yeah, it has its ups and downs. Okay. We're figuring it out. Okay. Um, but I but I, I asked that because I can be personal too, Coleman. Okay. I'm gonna make you cry. No. <laughs> Not hard. I cry. You know, I cried driving over here. Okay. Um, well, the traffic was awful. I'm sure. No, the traffic was fine. It oh, was. It was. Cried. It was the song. It was. Um, oh, it was Switch. Yeah. Really? I mean, I teared up a little. It was oh, a mi- mild tear up. Okay. Um, I only asked that about 13 years because my parents, my family has been divorced a handful of times. Okay. And so I think it has affected how I approach. Love? Yeah. I think that's, that's an easy statement to make. And it's probably made me uh, reluctant. Okay. A, a reluctant lover. But get this. And get this, and this I'm going to Oprah to you right now. Great. But get this. Because I have one more Oprah moment for you, too. I, th- <laughs> I just think it's important to, uh, they say you have to, I don't know, treat a relationship like, you know, people come into your life and they're like a little puddle in the middle of your hand. And sometimes it will fall and go away and the good stuff will stick around for a little longer. You give everything to, for the moment and just hope and have faith that it'll last. And when it doesn't, it's okay because it's opening up for the next one. I've, I've learned that. That's something I, I'm not just saying I, that's in practice. I, that's actually has happened to me Mm. to stay open, to constantly be open, but to go full out and go deep. I told my partner I I loved I loved him on our first date. I went full in, full out, because I knew I loved him. And it was no games. And it was true. It was right. <laughs> and I think a lot of times people don't go with that. Well, you know, you absolutely know. There's no games when people are like, oh, should I call this person back? Should I do this? Maybe I shouldn't do that. If you're doing all that thinking about it, you're not actually just being in it. Mm. Just be in it. And, I, and people should be a bit more fearless about love. Simple. Yeah, it's simple. It's actually simple. Like, look, we're kids. I like you. I like you too. I'm gonna hold your hand. That's it. It's actually that simple. As adults, we get we make everything so complicated, and the more we get down to simple, simple truths about love, the more we win. And we gotta go full, full out because that's the only. Listen, we're all here for the blip of an eye, you know. So I feel like it's like we're here. Just go for it. 
tell the person you love them and go full go full out and see how far that goes and when it doesn't go any further it's okay too they need to go on their way you need to go on your way and find something else and the next door will open up that's life well maybe i'll play this tape for her and see what she says yeah do it <laughs> tell her go for it it started this whole conversation started with simplicity mm-hmm. in your family and I'm, I'm immediately thinking about your mother uh, goes to see if her boy is still the same boy in San Francisco and you guys go to a bar and she's the type of mother who, when you're in the bathroom, she's befriending the people around her. She's the type of mom who wrote letters to Oprah as supportive as you can possibly get. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking now where you're at in your career 2018 you know i wonder what would your mom say about you're just gonna kill me aren't you you're just gonna kill me i know that my mother would be very proud because i think that um i know my mom and i'm not going to angelicize her at all she was a really she was just a robust, funny, sweet woman. She gave you the her last of everything. And she was the kind of mother who would talk to everyone in a supermarket and you'd be so embarrassed. You're like, Oh my god, can we just get out of here? Why does she have to talk to everybody? But she she made friends everywhere and everyone knew her. Walking down the street, you can never just walk down the street, you're like, Oh my god. And she's gotta tell everybody what you're doing and how proud she is and you're like so annoyed by her. But I know that she um I'm so much like her that I do the exact same thing. I talk to everybody. I can never just leave a party. I have to go through and say, I'm I'm a spoke to speak to everybody. I know that she would be very proud of the things that I was doing in my career because she knows that they're meaningful. I think she'd be proud that of the people that, um, that I spend my time with that I care about. Um, I'm very protective of the people I love. And, uh, and it's funny, I think there's some, that's funny. I had a moment today where I thought I wanted to make sure that I'm being clear with people, with friends, especially long-term friends. Let's say I had a moment with a friend a couple weeks ago where she, we were almost about to have it out a little bit because things weren't clear. And I know that that's important. I say clarity is just very important. And I think you just have to be clear with people and let people know how you feel and vice versa. I'm not perfect. I can be better, but you have to give people the opportunity to be better. And I'm willing to do the work because I think that's that's the real work when you love somebody. And I, lo- I know I love intensely the people around me. And I know that my mother would be very proud of that. Um, she'd be very proud of um, the fact that I'm really sort of at the head of pretty much everything I'm doing. That I'm, I'm, I'm doing things. I, I, I recognize this and, and, it, and without any ego attached to it. I recognize that I'm doing things and creating things at such a level and a capacity that um, many people don't. And I've been very, I won't say I've been lucky. I will say I've worked very hard um, and I've created opportunities where there were none. Um, And I know I get that from my mother of just to keep going, to keep going, to keep, to find another way. I, I, me and my friend Ariel Shafir, we always say that, no one has ever really held a front door open for either one of us in our careers. And I don't even come through the back door. I come through like a chink in the wall <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to come back again. 
and come back again and you'll realize that I've always been here and you've needed me, you know? So that's what I feel like what's happening right now, which is why I feel like on every platform, things are, things are in a really good place right now. It's a, they're not always like that. And, but what's important for me, especially when I talk about this stuff is that I want people to see that there's been a lot of work and, and faith and taking chances and taking lots of risks to have any of this success that I have. None of it's been easy. And if people look at my career, even just about 10 years ago, they can see how different things were. Like the fact that people, you know, people I, I've had some guys say to me, oh, wow, I really want your career. First of all, I hate hearing that. Don't want my career. I want your career, you know? But I was like, do you, you really want my career? How about when I was on Broadway and I got off a Broadway stage and within the next month I was on unemployment and my refrigerator broke and it was hot in the summertime and I didn't have any money and I had to borrow $100 from a friend of mine, a friend of mine's friend on the streets of Harlem. And I was crying like a baby because I was like, I'm 36 years old. What am I doing with my life? 36, 37. I said, that's part of this career. But yet still, and after this successful Broadway show was Passing Strange on Broadway, I go back to bartending downtown. I, you know, this, those constant moments. And like, that's really being an artist. Some dude the other day told me, he's like, you know, good looking tall guy. He was like, you know, I'm try, I want to try this acting thing. I said, well, first of all, I don't call it a thing. I said, I want you to respect it if you really want to be an actor and really learn. And so I think I was the wrong person for him to t say this to because I realized I was not, not that I wasn't kind, but I was like, I have such a respect for what we do. Don't call it a thing and know that it takes great work. I said, not just because you're good looking and somebody says, oh, you should be an actor because you, you like the finishing product of it all. It's like, so therefore I, I sort of launched into a little, a bit of a tirade for like five minutes and I could tell that it was not what he wanted. I said, you're gonna have to figure. He said, I'm just wanting to take some classes. I said, not only take some classes, you have to really. I said, you have to really figure out how you want to do this. Do you just want to be a pretty face, or you want to really do the work? I said, if you're ready to be on set for 16 hours a day, if you're ready to be in a theater, uh, uh, a 99 seat theater, and get paid 200 dollars or less to do work, I said that you're rehearsing for 50 hours a week. I said, then come talk. Then I'll sit down with a cup of coffee and I'll tell you. I'll give you some advice on how to get there. But his eyes were wide. He didn't understand the work that went into it. Because, hmm. yeah, it takes work. It takes a lot of hard work. You and, I, it. and Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I would use that word, but I guess that's a word that I don't even know what being making it is. I think, I, think, I think when I made it, I made it, I first made it, like, the first job I got, like, in, you know, the early 90s when I was in an educational theater school tour. I feel like I made it. I think you made it at Temple. I think I made it at Temple, huh? I, I, I'll receive that. I made it because I guess I made a decision, right? And I made, I connected with something and I said yes to it. So that, I guess that is making it, mm. you know? Well, I know you said that the door has not been open for you and that you are uh, not welcome in some places, but uh, you were always welcome back here. I, pre I appreciate it. And and I'll say that to say that that was then and now is now. And I, I could tell you the doors have been flung wide open lately. And that's been, I think that, like I said, that that's been a, um, a lot of hard work for a lot for a long time. I came through the, the, the chink in the wall, but now <laughs> the doors, the doors are opening up. I hope they is, stay that way. I hope so too. You know, you never know in this business, but right now I'm, I'm having a good time and hopefully I can open up doors for other people too. Coleman, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm not crying anymore. <laughs>
special thanks to Kelly Hires and Anik Moeller for making this week's episode possible. Coleman has two films out in theater this fall. The first one, Assassination Nation, drops September 21st, and then on November 30th, we have If Beale Street Could Talk from director Barry Jenkins. You can learn more about Coleman at www.talkeasypod.com. Also on the site, you can find all the episodes we've done with uh, actors, filmmakers, uh, writers this year. John Cho, Alan Alda, Giancarlo Esposito, Ioni Sky, Alia Shawkat, Willem Dafoe, Lena Waithe, Jenny Slate. Some of those are from last year, but all of those can be found on our website, iTunes, SoundCloud, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. As always, the show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, our associate producer is Elliot Weintraub, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.